The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, we're starting a series today called King of Kings. And, and it really follows on from the last series that we've, been, that we've been in. If you've been with us over the last six weeks or so, we've been walking through the books of Samuel and Kings uh, looking for the Messiah, searching for the Messiah. The, the Old, Old Testament promises over and over again, these little hints and these little allusions and prophecies and promises that there's going to, God's going to send someone who's going to come and, and make everything right. He's going to bring redemption to his people and um, he's going to be a king. And so we've been looking through the history of Israel and Judah's kings for this Messiah and we didn't find him, not in those books. And then the purpose of this series is to, is to now turn to the, the Gospel of Matthew and, and see, here he is. He, he's arrived in, uh, on the scene in, in the Gospels, in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason why we're, we're walking through, and we're not, it's not a full exegesis of Matthew's Gospel, it's just a few points here and there. And, and the parts that we've, we've picked are the parts where it explicitly says, this took place to fulfill what was said in the Old Testament, or what was said by the prophet, or what the Lord said. Matthew, uh, amongst other things in Matthew's gospel, uh, has a, a particular focus on Jesus being the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. And so we're going to be walking through um, certain parts of Matthew's gospel in the lead up to Easter, showing that uh, this is the Messiah that the, the Old Testament, the, the prophets in the Old Testament were pointing towards as one big picture. And so uh, we're going to be doing that up till Easter. That's going to be um, form our a passage for uh, Palm Sunday, for Good Friday. Uh, Good Friday, we're going to just be in Matthew 27. Easter Sunday, Matthew 28. And then following that, looking at the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, uh, where God sends his people out. So that's the, that's the point of this passage. Let me, read, uh, let me read it to you. Matthew 12, verses 9 to, uh, 9 to 21 will be our, we'll, we'll, where we finish there. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. And it was restored, as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we commit this time to you, to hear from you in your word, that you would guide us in all things. Teach us, Lord, all that we need to be taught. Holy Spirit, we ask for your power to come upon your word here today, that we would submit to your word. Lord, for those of us who are feeling a little bit weak, bruised and struggling, Lord, would you open up our hearts and, and eyes to see your, your glory? Would, would you open up our hearts and minds to see your comfort towards us? Lord, for those of us who have become too self-reliant, too independent from you, Lord, would you draw us back to yourself again this morning? We love you, Jesus. Amen. 
one of the things that happens regularly in our house is uh, our kids come to, my, to me or Kirsty and they bring a broken toy asking if we can fix that toy. And generally when they come to us asking if we can fix it, it could go one of a few different directions. If it's Lego, that they've, they've dropped their Lego creation and it's busted into pieces all over the ground, then, you know, that's kind of... And they, maybe they're too distraught to put it back together and so we, we can help them with that. That's easy. Sometimes, though, it's, it's, it's toys that, you know, they are repairable and we'll do our very best. Things like, you know, super gluing wings back onto planes or stitching, uh, stitching toys back together where grandmother's dog has torn its face off, whatever it is. Um, and the kids, there crying and the dogs, they're very happy and Kirstie's there stitching. And Other times, though, it's just a lost cause. Like... Um, there's this phenomena that if you go to a kid's party and you get a party bag, there's often this, those really cheap and nasty plastic toys and kids become addicted to them straight away like my entire happiness is now upon this toy and then it breaks a minute and a half later and they're distraught and they're like, you need to fix this and no amount of super glue in all the world will fix this toy because it's like that clacker thing and you don't really want to fix it because if you fix it, it's going to just drive you nuts so you don't have the motivation to fix it and then if you, if you try and you get super glue all over, over your hands and it's just this like, oh, and we think to ourselves, oh, thank you, Lord, for these party bags to grow us in patience. Here's the thing that I think this text is going to show us. Our God is a God who wants to put us back together. We serve a God who, who wants to and can reassemble us, put us back together, bring us back to how he created us to be, to bring us back into a relationship with him, to restore us into our humanity that he created us to be, to have a relationship with God. And that comes solely, only through Jesus Christ. Nobody, there's nobody here who God can't put back together, and there's nobody here who doesn't need to be put back together. We need God to heal us. Heal our bodies, heal our hearts, heal our souls. And only he can do it. And I think that's what this passage is going to teach us this morning. So let's just walk through it. It begins with the words, moving on from there, which refers back to a prior scene where Jesus and the Pharisees had this, uh, this confrontation where they, uh, they were upset about what his disciples were doing on the Sabbath. And so here an- another confrontation about the Sabbath comes up. It's about to take place. It says that Jesus entered their synagogue, that's the Pharisee synagogue, operated by them, and there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they, that's the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus comes across this man who, who found life, would have found life just incredibly difficult. One hand just doesn't work. Everything's got to be done with the other hand. Work is almost impossible. Earning an income, almost impossible. Supporting loved ones, feeling that sense of independence, just being able to, to do what he wants to do, impossible. Needing help all the time from others, needing to rely on the availability of others and the compassion of others to help him out. This is what this man was walking through. There's no disability support for him. Life would have been just so, so difficult for him. And here the Pharisees do something pretty nasty. See, what they want, they want to back Jesus into the corner and they want to trap him. They're getting sick of him. They're getting frustrated with him. Every time they have an interaction with him, he really just dresses them down. He really just shuts them down. And so what they're trying to do, what they want to do here is they want to trap him and make him choose between two not great choices. One choice is disobey the Sabbath laws that they had come up with, that they had added to, which was to not heal on the Sabbath. That would have been considered work. And if Jesus breaks that command of theirs, then they could get him in trouble for that. However, if he does heal the man, sorry, if he doesn't heal the man, then he can't have any claim on compassion. They're trying to trap him to choose one between two Horrible options. Either don't heal this man and then you can't claim to have compassion for him or do, this, do heal this man and then you're in trouble. And the nasty thing here is that this man, this man with a shriveled hand, has become a pawn in their game. 
They only care about him as much as he can serve their purposes and they can use him. This is the nature of sin. Sin puts us in the center of our world. Sin makes us believe, hey, I'm the most important person here. My agenda is what should rule. I should be on the throne. And the people around us are there to prop ourselves up to prop our agenda up. We'll use them to, to bring forth our will. And we all do it, regardless of our age, regardless of our income. It's when we value the worth of someone to the degree that they can actually help us get what we ultimately want. If that person can, can do something for me to, to help me still remain in the center of, of my universe, then, then, that's what, then that's what I need that person to do. The thing about their question, though, was that nowhere did it say in God's law that healing was a violation of God's Sabbath law. There, there was the, the law to not work on the Sabbath. That was, therefore, as a good gift to God's people. But then the question would have come up, well, what qualifies as work? This is the question that the Pharisees wrestled with. And what the Pharisees ended up doing was adding these extra stipulations into, into the obedience of God's law. And so if, if crossing the line to, to, disobey that, um, to disobey that command not to work, if this is where we cross the line, then they want to bring the line a whole lot further away so that it just makes it really hard to, to break God's law. And the, you know, sure, there might have been some good motive in that, but what it was here in this point was now a means of controlling other people and really a means of just treating God as if he's just like a dollar machine. You just make sure you, you treat, treat him right and he'll treat you right. What we're meant to see here is the Pharisees' hardness of heart. They created all of these extra stipulations for God's law, and now there was no mercy. There was only a deep-seated goal to be rid of Jesus. Boy, were they glad when that man with the shriveled hand walked into the synagogue that day. He would make excellent bait to trap Jesus. Perfect bait. And this man is a focus because we're meant to, to learn something from him. You know, if you've been battered around by life, if you've been used and treated poorly, if you've been used as a pawn in someone else's game, we're meant to look at this and, and see what Jesus does with such people. And the thing is, you don't need to have a shriveled hand to identify this with this guy. You don't need to have a shriveled hand to have been battered by the world. You, you may or may not have a, a physical disability like this man, but you also might have an emotional crippling uh, anxiety or worry or depression. It, it might be that you've got this thing that just, you just can't escape from underneath. It might, it might be that life has just treated you poorly. Like you just you look back at the last few decades and you just go, life's just been tough. Or maybe you've been battered and bruised by the promises of, by believing the promises of this world. That if, if you look deep within, you'll find greatness there. And then all you've got to do once you discover who you are, once you find that greatness, all you've got to do is just express that greatness, express who you truly are deep inside, and then you'll be happy. And you gave it a go, and all you found inside was a deep, self-centered void. And, and, and the people around you didn't accept you. It actually hurt. Or maybe you've been bruised and battered by just the, the constant comparisons that you seem to continue making with other people around you. Like you, you look at her photos and, and she looks amazing and the kids are all matching, matching outfits and, and uh, you know, they've got like the healthiest lunch ever and, and whatever it is and we compare ourselves and then go, oh, my life is nothing. Or we look at his car and we look at his house and we look at all the things that he has and all his toys and all his cool stuff. And, and we go, oh, if, if only I had that, then I would be happy. And so we start to make sacrifices. We start to go, I'm just going to get that. And it bruises us. It bashes us around. We, we become hurt by that. Or maybe it, it, you've just hit dead end after dead end after dead end. And the things you keep trying just seem to come to no fruition. And you're on a road right now, today even, and you're thinking to yourself, God, why have you got me here? This is the, the, how life, we can be bruised and buffeted, buffeted by life. 
So the question is, what, did, what does Jesus do with such people? And we can see this here, what he does. In typical fashion, Jesus responds to their question with another question of his own. He does this all the time. Verse 11, he replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? Jesus gets really personal with this question. He doesn't argue in theory about like certain interpretations of the law. He just says, who among you? Almost as if to say, come on, guys, let's get real. Like if your, if your sheep on a Sabbath day fell into a pit, you would pull the sheep out or you'd grab hold of it and you'd yank it out, wouldn't you? Like it's, let's not talk theory here. Let's think about your sheep. Wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you just reach into the pit and pull it out? Wouldn't, wouldn't you just grab it? And I wonder if this man, this man with a shriveled hand, listening to this, suddenly felt a new sense of belonging all of a sudden. Because if Jesus is this personal about this, then maybe, maybe this guy belongs to Jesus. Like if Jesus had just said, hey guys, if, if you would do this for one of your sheep on the Sabbath, why can't I pull out one of my sheep on the Sabbath? My sheep. That's the invocation. That this man is one of Jesus' sheep. And I wonder if this man suddenly thought, oh, hold on. Could I belong to this famous teacher? And Jesus is saying, guys, you wouldn't wait till the next day. You wouldn't open your law and, and try and find Sabbath-compliant regulations for grabbing a sheep and pulling it out of a pit. You just grab it and you'd pull it out of the pit. Surely that's work. And then he delivers the punch in verse 12. He says, A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. His logic is undeniable. If a sheep warrants the breaking of your rules, then how much more do people? And just press pause for a moment. I'm noticing in our world a strange phenomenon where and I think it's been around for a long time, but I've just picked up on it this week, where our world is saying, hey, sheep, animals, they are on equal par with, God's, with, with mankind. Just so you know the truth, the Bible does not agree with that. Mankind was created in God's image. Animals weren't. Just so you know where we stand on that, just in case that comes up, you're thinking, just so we know where we stand on that, where this is what we'll teach. We are image bearers. God has imprinted his image upon us, not on sheep, not on the cutest puppy. Is not equal to any person, just so you know. So Jesus' reply, he kind of answers that question. Sorry, but that was a bit of a sidebar. Jesus' reply, his, his, he kind of answers that question. He also kind of doesn't. Their question was, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And his answer is, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That's his answer. And so the next question is, well, what does it mean to do good? And Jesus answers that question by what he does next. And it's to show mercy. Jesus is the king of mercy. The king who is merciful. He told the man, stretch out your hand. Now, let's just notice, notice a couple of things. Firstly, the man didn't ask for this. Like, read the Gospels. You'll see lots of people coming to Jesus asking for healing, but the man doesn't ask for this. He's just there. Jesus is the one who wants this. Jesus is the one who wants to do good on that day and show mercy to this guy. And we would do well to remember that we never, ever have to twist God's arm to do good for us. Everything he does for us is always good. And that's, that's a hard pill to swallow when we consider some of the roughness that we, we walk through in life. God, how, how can you t possibly turn this into your good plan? But we know that he is of infinite power and wisdom and insight and strength. There is nothing that he cannot do. The good that he does is to make us more and more like Jesus. And he is at work always in that in our hearts. The second thing I want us to see is that Jesus doesn't lift a finger to heal this man. 
He might have had his hands behind his back the whole time. We don't know. In other miracles, Jesus has laid hands on people. He's, he's even used his own spit sometimes. He's done a whole lot of different things. But this time, he doesn't lift a finger and he just simply uses these four words, stretch out your hand. No one can accuse him of breaking the Sabbath law with that. Like if they did, he could say, I didn't do anything. I just stood here and just said, stretch out your hand. That's all I said. Can you see how sublime Jesus is in his subversiveness? Like He's just like, stretch out your hand. I'm not doing anything here. It's the man who stretches his hand out towards Jesus, not Jesus to the man. A single word from the mouth of Jesus contains more power in it than every single word ever written in every single volume by mankind. His words have power. The lips that created the man now call forth his hand, and the withered limb obeys. So he stretched it out, and it was restored, as good as the other. Now, you know that feeling when you've had a really good night's sleep, and you've been kind of in the same position for a while, and you wake up, and you stretch your legs, and you stretch your arm, and it feels amazing? I reckon we could time that by about a billion, and that's what this guy felt that moment, stretching out his hand for the first time becoming as good and as strong as the other. Muscles finding their strength, tendons coming together, the skin becoming the right color, blood flowing through it, stretching out his hand. How wonderful this man would have felt then and there. How did the Pharisees respond? We're told that he went out, that they went out, and plotted against him how they might kill him. Jesus has just untangled the, the knots of sin in this man's life, and the Pharisees have a strangely evil response. He's just received back the use of his hand. His life has now just totally changed forever. He has been liberated, and their response was evil. They didn't just want Jesus to go away. They didn't, it doesn't say they went and hoped that he would die. It says they went out and they plotted, how can we kill him? They started making plans for it. They took counsel. They had meetings. How can we kill this guy? Why though? Why do they want to kill Jesus? Well, I think the answer is as simple as it is petty. It's simply this. Jesus was holy and they were not. Jesus was good, and they were not. Jesus was exercising true authority from God, and they were not. He was showing them up. They hated him for this. Like, you know when you're at school, and you hand in your assignment, and you've worked really hard, and then you see someone else hand their assignment, and it looks a thousand times better, and you're like, oh, man, they totally showed me up, and you kind of start to hate that person? A number of years ago, I went to, I was hanging out with some friends, and we were um, wanting to play basketball, um, at night and went down to the school and they had a really good outdoor basketball court and as we got there there was this sign on the fence that said no trespassing after hours and this was like 8 o'clock at night and like we, we weren't going to do it. we were good Christian boys we weren't going to do any kind of damage or vandalize we just wanted to play some basketball and so we like ah, it's all good and we, we jumped the fence and went and played basketball except for one friend of mine Luke Williams who was like guys can't do it sign says no and I can't in good conscience disobey this. And I hated him for it. I was so angry at him because he showed me up. And I found out years later, he hated me for that. He was like, dude, you should have stuck by me with that. And it, this is, I think this is what's going on for the Pharisees here. He was this crippled man in their congregation. Nothing had been done about it. Then in comes Jesus. He heals them and all they can do is get angry at it and plot to kill him. Their hatred for Jesus seems to be born out of a hatred for themselves. And this is the thing about this, is that they're confronted with the goodness of Jesus in this, and this is what this passage does. This, this brings comfort, and it also confronts us. Jesus comforts, and he afflicts. He, he comforts the afflicted, and he afflicts the comfortable, as the saying goes. And we know we're reading this right when we're getting both of these things. See, on the one hand, Jesus com- on the one hand, we should be comforted that Jesus cares for those of us, for all of us, when we have been battered and bruised by life, but also we're confronted with a mirror. 
Jesus holds up a mirror to us, and we see the way that he, is, treats, he, we, the way that he treats the downcast, and he holds up this mirror, and we, we have to ask, have we been caring like this as well? Do we care for people around us who have been bruised and battered by life the same way that Jesus cares for them? See, this was ground zero for the Pharisees' heart, and they didn't want that. This man threatened everything for them. And so they plot to kill him. And we should mark this verse out. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14 has been important because this is the first time in Matthew's gospel that we read of the scribes and the Pharisees seeking to kill Jesus. They got frustrated with him, they had arguments with him, but now they want to kill him. And you can see the long and tall shadow of the cross looming over this moment. The shadow of the cross reaches all the way here to Matthew 12, 14. It's here that the cross comes into view. And this is why we started this series today in this, in this passage, because we're going to the cross. We're on our way to the cross for Easter. We're going to spend decent chunks of our time focusing on that. Here's the thing. Jesus was, was interested in more than just healing this man's hand. He wanted to save the whole man's being. Like if we think about it, this man wasn't caught in a pit. This man, it wasn't an urgent scenario. It wasn't, this really could have waited until the next day. Like Jesus could have, if he wanted to, say, hey, hey, man, I see your hand. Um, I see that hand. And he, um, oh, we're going to come back tomorrow. Uh, it's not a good, if, I, if I heal you right now, it's just going to cause, it's going to ruffle some feathers. So listen, let's just be me back outside the synagogue tomorrow and I'll heal the hand. He doesn't do that. He heals them then, he heals the man then and there. Healing this man cost Jesus his life. Because by healing him there in the synagogue on the Sabbath in front of those Pharisees provoked them to want to go and kill him. It's a mistake for us, I think, to read this story and try and just reduce it to simply methods for healing. Jesus' mission was far more than this man's hand. It was his whole body, his soul, his heart, his mind, his spirit, everything. His hand wasn't the main thing. It was part of the main thing. The main mission for Jesus was mercy towards this man. And this cost Jesus his life. And this brings us to the next part of the text, but I, I want to take a, a little brief intermission at this moment and talk about something different because it's going to help us understand this next part. I said earlier that what sin does is it makes us want to be the center of the universe. And that's not so much that we want the attention, although that is true for some people. It's that we want to be in charge. We want to be on the throne. That's what, that's what sin leads us to. We want to have autonomy over our lives. We want to rule. We want to decide what is good for us. Nobody should tell us what to do with our own lives. We can do whatever we want. And this is what sin does, and it's why we need the Holy Spirit, really, to open our eyes to the goodness of God, because he comes in and he gently sweeps us off our throne, and he sits there instead. And then this sets us, when we... When we, when we so desire to, to be in charge, to have our own autonomy, this sets us on, on a path that the Bible calls idolatry. And the goal of idolatry is always the same. It's always to keep us in charge. We want whatever it is around us to, to keep us feeling that way, to feel like we, we, we're satisfied where we are. And we, we, we don't need God. We don't need him around us. And we'll do anything to keep it that way. And idolatry is whenever we go to something that isn't God and we go, I need that to keep me where I am. I need that to keep me happy. I need that to satisfy me. I need that for my sense of, of, of being. But it always comes at a cost. Always. The idol that we go after will demand from us that we sacrifice more and more of ourselves until there's absolutely nothing left. And in that way, it dehumanizes us. It reduces us and reduces us over and over again. And not only does it dehumanize us, but it dehumanizes those around us. Because before too long, everybody else is just a pawn in our game. And this forms the backdrop for the next part of our passage. It says that Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. 
He was aware of the fact that the Pharisees wanted to kill him, and he withdrew. Now, we've got to be careful. That's not an action to try and save his own life, because Jesus came to die. This is more so uh, that it's just not his time yet. It wasn't quite time for this to take place, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. It says, large crowds followed him when he withdrew, and he healed them all. Now, this is one of those verses that we can so easily read over. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. But just put yourself in that scenario for a moment. Imagine you have a a little girl born blind, and you hear about this teacher who can heal. And so you gather whatever gifts you can, not sure how much it's going to cost you, not sure what this teacher is going to charge or require and you'd make the trek and you'd take your little girl there and you're just aching, you're just hoping that he can help in some way and then you stand in line and you get there and you see him and he looks at you as if you're the only person on the planet and he's, his, his face and his smile and his whole being just welcomes you as if you're a long lost friend and he, he sees your daughter and he's got great compassion for her and he puts his hand on her face and she can suddenly see and she looks at you for the first time. That happened on that day. We don't get the specifics of it, but large crowds followed him and he healed them all. Let's just take the brevity of all of that and let's time that by however many people in that large crowd. It could be thousands that day. Over and over and over again, people being liberated from physical ailments that had plagued their life. What a wonderful day that would have been. Happy days that day. Hundreds of lives, thousands of lives potentially changed on that day. Sheer delight. But as he did this, it says that Jesus warned them not to make him known. Now, that's fairly typical behavior for Jesus. He does this over and over again. And often, we know that normally it's the case because what the people wanted, they wanted a king who would crush Rome. They wanted a king who would crush their enemies. But Jesus would be the king who would come and be crushed by his enemies in order to save those who oppose him. This is why it wasn't quite yet time yet. But but Matthew then adds something interesting here. He says, Jesus warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And those two words, so that, are really important because it's helping us understand that there's actually a, a reason for this, an additional reason for this than what we're used to. Here's the thing. Matthew could have left verses 17 to 23 out. He could, we could erase that from the text, and we probably wouldn't have even noticed. Like, we still would have read about the man with the shriveled hand, Jesus going out into the wilderness, healing all these people, and then it would have gone on to the next thing. But Matthew includes this prophecy from Isaiah for a very important reason. There's a few significant reasons, and this is a significant passage Um, One of the things that is significant about this is that Matthew is over and over again alluding to or quoting from the Old Testament. And this here is the longest quote that Matthew has of the Old Testament, the longest continual quote that he has from the Old Testament. But the main significance is that Matthew is quoting from what we now know as Isaiah chapter 42. And in Isaiah chapter 42, he talks about, Isaiah talks about this, this mysterious character known as the servant of the Lord. And, and Isaiah brings the servant of the Lord up four times in his whole book. And this is the first time we read of the, this servant of the Lord. This is an important moment in the book of Isaiah. So in Isaiah 42, when he's saying this, at this point in time, the people of Judah, they had been exiled to Babylon. So if you've been here for the last six weeks, hopefully you'll know that, yeah, the people of Judah, they, they rebelled against the Lord, and so he rose up the Babylonians to come and, and exile them to, to Babylon. And the people are there, and they've, they've kind of become complacent in the land. They've, they've, they knew that God had promised that he would return them, but they've kind of lost hope. And then God starts speaking to them, and, he, and we, kind of, we see God start speaking to them, to them about their return in Isaiah 40, and he's telling them that God's, that Isaiah's saying God's going to return you to the land. He's going to raise up this other king, King Cyrus of Persia, and, and Cyrus is going to lead the Persians against the Babylonians, and they're going to win. And then King Cyrus is going to 
allow them to return. He's going to send them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple and the walls. But the people are resistant. They're not trusting in God anymore. They've put their trust in idols. They've started to become like the people around them. And so Isaiah addresses their idolatry. And he says to them, look, all of them, the idols, all of them are a delusion. Their works are non-existent. Their images are wind and emptiness. In other words, there's no substance to an idol. There's no satisfaction there. There's no meaning there. There's no salvation there. These things do nothing. They're just little statues, these little figures that sit there. They do nothing. You created them. And yet you hope that they're going to save you. They, they do nothing. They're, they're absolutely empty. They're, they're a delusion. And we could, we could say the exact same thing for the idols of our heart. Like if we think, if I have a rock-solid career, then I don't need anything else. And without a career, I'm nothing. That's what, that's what an idol does. And we've got to hear this. That's a delusion. That thing, that career, doesn't form your identity. Our identity is, is formed and shaped by the Son of God. Or we might think what I need is a bigger house. What I need is a more beautiful body. And if I have that, then, I, then, I'll, then I'll finally be happy. And if I don't have that, I'm nothing. And it's a delusion. It's a lie. It's emptiness, it's wind, it's empty, it's non-existent. But the servant of the Lord, Isaiah starts saying in chapter 42, but of the servant of the Lord, he says, this is my servant. I will strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. This is what Matthew's quoting. He's saying, he's starting to draw a line to Jesus about this. This is the connection to idolatry. Idolatry creates injustice. And that's, in Isaiah, that means more than just lawlessness. It's not just breaking the law, but injustice is the undoing and the reversal of God's created order. Idolatry distorts us, it dehumanizes us, it reduces us down to this thing that we put our hope and trust in, it dehumanizes us, it distorts us and our relationships around us. When Isaiah talks about injustice, he's talking about the disordering of creation. Mankind, we, we were created according to the blueprint of God. That we would bring glory to him and we would, it would be for our flourishing that we would have a relationship with him, that we would be able to worship him and, and in worshiping him, doing exactly what we were created to do, we would be fully satisfied, fully enjoying him. And that's what Jesus came to, to get for us, to, to bring us back into that relationship with God. But here, we talk about idolatry, sinful idolatry came in and, and ruined that before we met Christ. We crush one another. We push each other into the dirt. We use one another. We, we go, oh, this person will be good for me because I can get this from them. And if they don't serve a purpose for me, then I don't value them. Our idolatry makes us treat those around us as pawns for our own game. We, we, we use others the same way that these Pharisees wanted to use this man with a withered hand. He, he serves a purpose here. I'm going to, I can use him right now, but as soon as that man's hand was healed, he served no purpose to these Pharisees anymore. In our household, we love Lego. We, we love making it and building it, all that kind of stuff. And, and over the last few years, several years, every single birthday and Christmas, our kids have gotten some Lego. Sometimes it's a small thing, sometimes it's a bigger thing. And as a result, we've got quite a lot of Lego, and most of it's kept in this big blue bag that's all kind of jumbled up inside there. They've got a few things that they've built, and they've got, you know, on presentation, and no one's allowed to break them down. Um, but then this bag is full of, like, just this jumbled up Lego of projects that have been broken apart. And part of my, something that's on my bucket list, and I don't know that I'll ever get around to do this, I'd love to just go through it and just organize it all. Just get it all, like, get like a tackle box and just put everything into the right thing. And then, because we've kept all the instruction manuals for all the things, and then build everything again and see, just see if we can build absolutely everything. It's just like this, oh, I'd love to do it. It'd be really, really great. And I just don't. Like it, I, I want to build the, this Lego back into what it was designed for. 
That's what justice is in Isaiah. It's reordering creation according to God's blueprint for, for humanity. And this is why Matthew said that Jesus warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Matthew, when he's writing this gospel, years later, was thinking about this moment, thinking about all that he saw Jesus do on this day, and he drew a line from that moment back to Isaiah 42 and said, oh, this is the servant of the Lord. This is what he was doing that day. This is the Messiah. This is the one who would undo the curse of sin. This is the one who would put humanity back together and bring humanity back to created order. This is the one who would bring justice. He healed them all. This is what this is about. We said before that Jesus was the king of mercy and now we have reason to say that Jesus is the king of justice. Jesus is the one who puts us back together again. This man's perfect hand was the the perfect illustration for it. Jesus restored his hand to its creative purpose. Imagine an architect coming across a building that he designed and looking and going, that's not how I designed it. Jesus walked into the synagogue that day, sees this man's hand and maybe thought, that's not how I designed it. It's as if Jesus did that and then decided to put it back together. And then he went out of the city. He withdrew and continued to bring justice. He's healing them all, putting humanity back together again, rebuilding, restoring each person to their original design. He's reordering humanity. Isaiah says, He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. The servant of the Lord was not going to big note himself. No one was hearing his voice in the streets because he wasn't in the streets. He was out in the wilderness. And I think that might be the connection that made Matthew think about this. And this is one of the key differences between Jesus and the Pharisees. They wanted to big note themselves. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be at the center of the universe. And they were willing to step on anybody just to get that. Jesus doesn't step on anybody. He's the opposite. He's not a bully. It says, He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. Until he has led justice to victory, the nations will put their hope in his name. This is the gentleness of Jesus. He's not stomping on anybody. He's not stepping on people to elevate himself. He doesn't revel in the downfall of others. He doesn't devour the poor. He's gentle and careful. He doesn't trade on anybody. He's careful with people. A bruised reed is quite a sorry state. You think of a reed like that thing that grows in, in watery places. I mean, it's not a symbol of strength when it's not bruised. But a bruised one is just like, you know, it's kinked, bent over, and doesn't do what a reed should do anymore. A bruised, a bruised reed is a person who has been bruised and battered by life, and they are at their, at their end. Here's the thing about Jesus He's not going to break you, He's not going to finish off the job, He's going to treat you carefully. He's not going to walk all over you. He is gentle. He won't finish you off. A smoldering wick is the person whose faith is diminishing. They can't quite hold on any longer. The doubts have crept in. They once had a, a flourishing, beautiful, wonderful relationship with Jesus. Times when it was like so wonderful, and now it's like a smoldering wick. It's hardly a bonfire that it used to be. Now it's like the, the wick of a candle that's it gone out. I can't really tell. Jesus comes to those embers and he fans them into flame. If you're struggling your faith, if, if there's things, may, maybe you're on a bit of a path of even deconstructing your faith, you're starting to question a whole lot of stuff, and you're going, oh, I just don't know if I can trust the Lord anymore. Jesus is not counting down the hours and the days to finally blow you out. He wants to fan you back into flame. And he will do this until the job is done, until... He has led justice to victory. That is until his work of bringing humanity back to their created purpose is done. God's perfect purpose for mankind is to reverse the curse of sin and put humanity back together. Some of us here will experience that in great ways on this side of eternity. And for all of us who have put our faith in Christ, we will all receive all of it 
on the other side of humanity. Sorry, the other side of eternity. These verses expose the inner plots of our idolatrous hearts. When we, when we worship idols, we treat others according to the purpose that we think they can serve us. Can this person serve my purpose? Can this person make me feel better about themselves? How about, about myself? Can this person achieve somebody? Like, if they're good looking, maybe they're a potential spouse and they can make me look good. If they've got money, maybe they can, they can resource me with something that I could, I could do with. And, and this bruises everybody. Everybody gets hurt by this. The person who has nothing to offer is bruised by rejection. The person who has everything to offer is bruised uh, by manipulation. Everybody uses them. And the person who makes that distinction, who uses people like that, they get bruised themselves because they've treated humanity less than how God has designed them to live. You see, when we read this story, we, we might ask, am I more like the man with the withered hand? Or am I more, am I more like the Pharisee who, who, who did this? And I think the answer is yes. Like, we, we should read this and realize each one of us needs to be restored. Each one of us is like the man with the withered hand. And also, each one of us is guilty of using others around us. Each one of us has been bruised, and each one of us has done some bruising. Not a single one of us is exempt. We've all had that experience of being like the man with the shriveled hand, the one who is inconvenient until they're not. And we've also been on the other end of that too. Sin has disordered us, but God sent his servant, the servant of the Lord, his son, Jesus Christ, to reorder humanity, to bring justice and put us back together again. How did he do this? We've already read about it in verse 14. The Pharisees went out and plotted to kill him. What they didn't know is that Jesus had been plotting that way before them. He came to die. He had been planning that way before Matthew 12. And his death is the means by which we are put back together again. If sin is the reason why we have fallen apart, the cross is the place where Jesus puts us back together again. Because Jesus absorbed our sin on the cross, he took the blame completely. The cross is the place where sin is killed and death starts working backwards. See, Jesus didn't just die. He came back to life again in a new and perfect body, the same way that our bodies will be. And because the, the, the cross is the place where we are made whole and where Jesus reassembles us, we can come to the cross completely disassembled. You see, faith in Jesus is not about fixing yourself up and putting yourself back together to a kind of passable standard as best as you can and then coming to Jesus to show him what you can bring to the table and what you can offer and hoping that it will be enough. Faith is coming to Jesus with empty hands and saying, I've got nothing to offer. My hands are completely empty and I need you to rebuild me. I need you to do this work in me. It's coming to Jesus completely disheveled with nothing to offer and letting him put you back together. We don't have to pretend at the cross. We've got nothing to prove at the cross. The cross is a place where we can come and utterly fall apart and this is where Jesus does his best work when we completely unravel in front of him. Can you see that he loves you? Come, bruised reeds. Come, smoldering wicks. Let him strengthen you by his love. Let him bring you back together. Let him, let him reign in, by his mercy. Friends, we need this reordering. We need, every single one of us needs this. And if you're anything like me, you look at this man with the shriveled hand and part of you wants to be that guy because then you would have a tangible, physical experience of that you could point back to and go, yeah, but look at my hand. And I, you kind of wish that Jesus could be with us bodily right now to, to do that with us. Well, here's 
the good thing. Because what we're, what we're longing for in that, we're, we're longing for that close proximity with God. We're longing, like we know that we have been united with God through Jesus Christ by faith in him. But what we long for is that, that tangible, felt communion with him. To not just, not just know in our heads that, yes, I've been united to God, but actually to, to, to come close to him and feel him as if we can reach out to him like that man in the synagogue that day. The truth is that we can experience that this morning. We can experience that communion with him through what we're about to do in communion. See, suppose somebody was trying to convince you that they loved you, but you just struggled to believe it, and then they came and just embraced you. Suppose someone was trying to convince you that they loved you, and you struggled to believe it, and so what they did, they invited you over to their house and sit you down at their kitchen table, and they fed you, and they, they, gave, you, they gave you a meal, they gave you a drink, and they, they held your hand, they looked you in the eye and said, I do love you. What we're about to do, we're about to come to the Lord's table the kitchen table of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we take the cracker and the juice, we're not just remembering the sacrifice. We're experiencing the touch of the truth of his love and his great mercy towards us and his grace towards us. The invitation is to come to the table with empty hands. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're invited to this table, but you've got to come with empty hands. You can't come trying to, trying to prove what you can, uh, with anything you can try and prove. You can't come with your resume. You can't come with all this list of things and I kind of deserve this. No, none of us deserve this. This is the grace of the Lord. We come with empty hands. We come with the empty hands of faith to experience his love and grace and for God to make us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. One degree of glory to the next. Jesus reassembling us. When we take communion, what we're doing is we're saying, I'm drawing close to God as he is drawn close to me. And we're letting the, the physical act of what we're about to do be the physical touch of the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 